Here's a few words with Gord Rich of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, Gord. Hey, how are you? Good, man. How's your day so far? Actually, not too bad. Not too bad. Kids are just finishing up from their nighttime drills. How'd that go? Well, I went pretty good by the sounds of it. I wasn't here for it. Brad and Jesse did it, so sounds like it went pretty good. Pretty heavy, I guess, after doing live fire all day. Oh, yeah, but these are the days that you should be having fun. Doing fires for two days, then getting up and you're running scenarios, because it's all just scenarios with, like, everything added. Right. 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning till, what is it now, 10. So they just run drill after drill after drill, hitting hydrants, pulling lines, throwing ladders, doing searches, all that fun stuff. Building grit. Yeah, firefighter stuff. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so they better be having fun because they don't like it now. Anything you want to chat about that's coming up? We have a couple of courses coming up. They're on our website. Uh, June 13th to the 16th is a rope rescue ops course with optional OFM testing at the end of it. July 8th to the 10th is our surface water course. There's only a few spots left in that. We keep our numbers under 10 for it. That's a blast of a program if you're looking for, for some fun in the summertime. July 11th to the 15th is our week-long rope rescue tech for anybody that's interested in tech. And as always, we have our pre-service program that's taking enrollment year-round for anybody interested in becoming a firefighter down the road. And when does the next one start? The next boot camp starts May 17th. It runs for 16 days straight. And I think we have a couple of weeks off and then another one goes. There's eight to ten boot camps a year depending on the demand for them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 47 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. What comes to mind when you think of someone who has done all the right things in life? What do you reflexively think of, and what emotions well up and wash over you? Guilt? Shame? Regret? Envy? Anger? Sadness? Or maybe it's safety, relief, happiness? or even pride, smugness, or superiority. Where do your inclinations of what constitutes right or wrong come from? The images and feelings that manifest are an invitation to understanding how much emphasis you place on the different categories you could apply right and wrong to, and how you view yourself within them. Because the moment you call the lives and choices of others to mind, it becomes about how you compare. There is a healthy balance of examining your life and living it. Hope, prediction, and hindsight can be equally helpful. The experience of analysis paralysis, which stems from anxiety from making the wrong decision, can lead us to a life of inaction that feels like safety and not like living. Sometimes we must go with what we know and what we have in front of us and learn from it later. The lines that run through all of it are self-awareness, self-love and compassion, and a growth mindset. We trust our hearts, minds, and gut and those closest to us to keep us honest and moving in a healthy direction, knowing full well that we will wander on and off the path along the way. My guest this episode has done this beautifully, and taken and created opportunities to offer what he can of himself to help guide others as well. 
I'm happy that you're going to spend some time with many Barajas. Tell me where you grew up and tell me about your family dynamic and how that was. So I grew up on the south side of San Antonio in a historic Hispanic neighborhood and pretty well established one. Many generational people stay here and we do the generations and kind of make it home and people stay close to their parents. And I did the same thing. My neighborhood, it's still not as upscale as other places, but there's a lot of self-respect, self-dignity that comes along with that Chicano culture. And it's how I grew up, for sure. For the most part, up until I was about 12 or 13 in a one-bedroom house with uh, my two other brothers and my one sister and my mom and dad. I kind of always hark back to that reality of how I grew up and kind of how the people I serve. Just keeping that always in mind when I approach what I do for a job. What did mom and dad do? They were working class for sure. My mom always had a job and whether it was cleaning, being a cleaning lady, or she got on with one of the school districts and became a cafeteria lady for a long time. And she's one of the hardest working women I know, coupled that with my dad, who was a, a blue collar worker himself. He worked at a uh, box making factory where they made cardboard boxes. He was on shift work and saw how that kind of took a toll on him. And he did that for a long time till he got hurt on the job and recovered and now he's back working. But that's kind of how I grew up with. I did have both parents in my household. So that made me very fortunate. And I saw other guys that maybe didn't have that. Always had my dad who he rode definitely with an iron fist with me and my, my younger brother, my whole family pretty much. And I appreciate that now, but maybe not so much then. Yeah. I think I needed that. I was a knucklehead. <laughs> I needed that for sure. How was school for you? School was a bad experience for me growing up. I felt like I had a learning disability, at least. I felt like things just didn't come to me as, as fast as maybe they did to other kids. And I kind of sunk and sulked into my shell. And I kind of reverted to what I always knew. And I was just defending myself with my fists whenever I got made fun of for not being able to read properly or in front of the group of students or whatnot. And and I felt like that was always my deal with school. And then once one thing happens, kind of cascades and snowballs and you never want to read and try to overcompensate by being the class clown or whatever. And that definitely stuck with me for a while, even all the way through high school. And I was always just barely making it, barely passing. <laughs> and I actually got kicked out of my high school senior year and things were going downhill. And my dad was always working and Finally, he realized what was going on before it was too late and grabbed me by my ear and said, no, you're going back to school. And I did graduate, did join the Marines shortly after that, which I think helped me for sure change my trajectory of my life. Did you have a core group of friends in school that sort of helped carry you through? We did. I didn't always hang around the best guys at school. I did have some good buddies that had their head on straight. One of my really good friends, he was my best friend, he was talking about wanting to join the Army. And I was like, man, this guy must know something that I don't like. He's he's kind of got his life figured out and he knows what he wants to do. And well, shoot, you know, maybe I should look into something like that. And I remember my uncle talking about the Marines and how the experience was for him. And I was like, man, that sounds a little interesting, especially when I don't got anything going for me. I should probably look into doing something like that. I went and talked to a recruiter and he told me, hey, you need to make sure you graduate I wasn't heading in that direction, so I was like, probably right. You're now in the area that you grew up in. Are you seeing kids that you see yourself in? Now that you're in the role you're in now, do you grab onto opportunities to try and steer them straight? How does that work? 
So I have a 17-year-old now. He wants to join the Marines. I actually had the recruiters over here yesterday, and it's kind of surreal. But I saw a kid that not only reminded me of my son, but reminded me of me. He reminded me of my son because he's his age, but for me more so that he was headed down the wrong path. He was in the back of a cop car, and we're getting a set of vitals on him. And I told him, how old are you, man? He's like, well, 17. And you're, you're doing all this. It was a big scene, and I think he was on drugs. And I was like, hey, man, like, get your stuff together. Like, I grew up not too far from here. I, I, I know you. You're, you're me. He just looked at me like, for real? He goes, you don't know where um You're not from around here. And I told him, well, I grew up on X Street or over here. He's like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, no matter what point you're at, you can still turn it around. It's not too late, which hopefully it's not too late for him. I do see occasionally some people I went to high school with that are on drugs and they're homeless and up to no good or carjacks and carjacking and stuff like that. And I'm just glad that I never went down too deep into that hole where I went to jail or something like that. Were you playing sports, even though the academic side wasn't enjoyable for you? I was always teetering on passing, and early on, my very first love with sports was boxing. It was something that came very natural to me. I kind of overcompensated with not being great in school and by being the class clown, and the solution for me was always, after being made fun of, was just to go beat that guy up, get ready to catch these hands. There's always a point in time I was in fights. I was always in some type of scuffle just because of that, and I kind of got the reputation. I was always in some type of scuffle, and I think that was just a big sham for me not being comfortable in my own skin and feeling like I wasn't adequate between the years and uh, not able to contemplate things the way that other people were and they were getting things a lot faster. And that's where I kind of harked to maybe I, I did have a developmental issue that was never really diagnosed. And that's something that always kind of stayed present with me even to this day. And you played some baseball and football too? I did. So after boxing, like I said, I fell in love with it. Did that for five years, and I was very dedicated to it to the point where I was training six days a week, running five miles a day after that, and kind of got burnt out. When I got burnt out with that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go play some football. It looks like it's pretty cool. They're having a good time. It doesn't look so rigorous on your schedule, and I get to hang out with guys I go to school with, and I was actually pretty good. I was a pretty decent football player, still getting in trouble here and there, and barely on the team, hanging on by a thread because <laughs> I was still being a knucklehead. and uh, But I loved it. I had some good games where I did really well and I thought maybe I had a future in football, but I couldn't grow up. I was still doing the knucklehead stuff and maybe not going to school when I needed to. And finally the coaches had it and they talked to me and told me, you know what, maybe this isn't for me and which I regret. It was a semi year off the team and semi, well, maybe I don't need to be here and try to come back. And the best thing they ever did for me was tell me no. Some decisions you can't take back in life and I had some really good coaches I think that's the best thing they ever did for me was teach me that that sometimes you can't come back from a decision you make there's not always second chances and that was a good lesson learned played baseball for a little bit I wasn't too good (laughs) I was a really good baseball player younger as a young kid those things you got to kind of stick with and it didn't carry over for sure in high school and now you're coaching your son in football So I coach him soccer season now, and he wants to start flag. I coached my older son with football for the better part of 10 years. He did really well. He was a really good player. He had a major injury that kind of stopped his career, which he kind of regrets. So he was looking on to the next thing, and I think the Marines was something he's been wanting to to do. And that's just kind of surreal for me, him wanting to follow in his dad's footsteps. But 
I just don't know how I feel about that completely right now. You had some exposure and idea about the Marines, but how'd that all come to fruition finally for you? My girlfriend at the time, she's my wife now. We're still married after 17 years. She came out pregnant and that kind of just solidified really strong decision I had been wanting to make. For me, there was no looking back. Okay, well, at least I can salvage my life right now and figure it out. And maybe with the help of the Marines to kind of help with the family dynamic as far as being able to provide for them, that that was the only decision really I had. Felt like I didn't have really anything else, no prospect of going to college. Like I said, I didn't feel like I was even capable. Didn't know where I was going to find the finances for that. But So I joined the Marines. I didn't even graduate completely yet. I had all my credits. They were like, fine, don't worry about it. We got a war going on. We need people. I went to boot camp. I got my diploma in the mail when I was in boot camp, or my mom did at least. She still has it to this day. Marine Corps was like a uh, cold splash of water to the face. Missing my family, immediate homesickness. Never been away that long. And all these emotions came back up about, man, maybe all these times I was being kind of a, a knucklehead with my parents or with whoever, my friends. Immediate regret. Maybe I should have been a better person to these people that I cared about. And maybe I should have told more people that I cared about them and loved them. You know, knowing that it, there's a war going on and it's fast track to be on the front lines was the Marine Corps. For sure that happened almost immediately. Went to my first duty station, went to my first unit and immediately got there. There was guys that had already been there three times, three tours. And this was back in 04, which the war had just pretty much started and these guys were on a constant rotation. It's like, well, you're up now. It's like, wow, it happened that quick. Went two tours to Iraq and that was an experience in itself. Made me appreciate life for sure. And I told myself I wouldn't waste it when I got back home, try to make the most of it. Had you traveled anywhere before you went to Iraq or was that your first time out of the country? Oh, very first time. Very, very first time. Like I said, I grew up Chicano, Mexican from San Antonio, but never really went to Mexico. Not too far away. It was somewhere we didn't go. Pretty much Mexico and San Antonio, if you're familiar with the area. So, no, I had never been anywhere else. In the Marine Corps, first time I've seen another country. Went to South Korea. That was the first time I've ever seen snow. I was like a fish out of water. They're like, hey, you got to drive. I'm like, I don't know how to drive. <laughs> I can't drive in snow. That was interesting. Do you think that whole experience, just like you said, the cold splash of water, your face is being plucked out of that environment that you're comfortable in that's keeping you in a cycle. And now you really can't focus on any of that because you've got to survive and adapt to things that are changing constantly that you've never experienced before. So I mentioned my son wanting to join. We had this conversation the other day. I had to tell him straight out how it was for me, my mentality, how I had to frame it for myself was that in order to kind of survive or keep your head in the game, you almost had to forget things that were going on at home because if you kept it on the forefront, you'd go crazy. You wonder, man, I hope everybody's okay. I hope nobody's in, in any danger or got into a car wreck or where they just need me and those things would drive you crazy. And sure enough, uh, I came home one tour, parents told me, hey, your uncle passed away. I'm like, when? Like a couple months ago. And I'm like, man, those are things they kind of kept from me, I guess, because they wanted me to stay focused, especially where I was at, as far as being able to do anything for them while I was overseas. And I can only imagine how they felt, my parents, about me being gone. Now that I'm, things are, the shoes on the other foot, as far as my son wanting to go through the same experiences that or for the most part, go through the same experiences that I went through. It's pretty scary for me 
but it's also I I don't want to cheat him out of an experience himself. What kind of connections did you make with people in your unit, and how was the experience interacting with your fellow Marines? It was a lifelong experience. I still talk to these guys to this day. Not everybody came back. Some people I still think about, and those memories are still fresh in my mind, and that makes me sad, but I still do conversate and talk to a lot of the guys that we were over there with and great relationships that I have forever. We see each other. We do a reunion every now and then. It's like we never left and we go back to when we were kids. We were just kids back then in a big world. Did any of those other guys get into emergency services as well? What's pretty interesting is it's a mixed pot of guys. Some of them have gotten in a lot of legal troubles. Some of them have done some pretty bad things, I think, just because of the experiences that maybe not completely able to deal with some of the stuff we've been through. One's still in prison, good buddy of mine. I have another one that's probably never getting out. I have others that are success stories too. Very good electricians. One's a barber. I have two that are barbers actually. Others that have went into the medical service, but not necessarily emergency services, which something that I thought I'd never do, be a firefighter. I thought I would never do that or be a fireman, which is surprising to me. Here I am six years later, still passionate about it and never thinking that I would have done it in the first place. When you got back, were you given any sort of support and help and feedback and guidance on how to reintegrate after that experience, you and the rest of the guys you know, or was it just drop back into the life and try and reintegrate? No, we got kicked out of the van while it was moving, so to speak. You had to pick up yourself. And if you didn't have those relationships, it would have been a lot harder. And it's still tough on a lot of guys. You pick up on the signs pretty quick. And I've been on the phone and have messaged more than I'd like to about this exact situation where guys have been on the cusp of doing something that that's almost unspeakable. But and that's something that's very prevalent in the veterans community. And we've lost more to suicide than we did over there, and which is pretty staggering. You try to at least be cognizant of it and pick up on it because uh, I've been there myself. You've been in the deepest, darkest places that your brain can go. And think if you can bring yourself out of it, it makes you that much stronger. If you've been there, you, you can see that you can recognize the signs and thankful that I've been able to help other people, even by just reaching out to them. Sometimes that's the most important thing. So how were you able to do it? How were you able to pick yourself back up and figure out life when you got home? I'm not proud of it. A lot of it was substance abuse, maybe drinking to excess and bringing myself back from that. I still struggle with it here and there, but for the most part, I've, I've kind of brought it in and have been able to manage it. What I honestly felt helped me a lot was going to school. I went to school while I got back. I was working a bunch of odd jobs and I didn't like take medication. I didn't like taking medication for any of the stuff I did, sleeping pills or anything the VA would prescribe. That's just not who I was. Sometimes I would drown my whatever I was going through with the bottle. But I think school helped me the most just because it kept my mind occupied. It kept me engaged and was a second chance at something that I felt I struggled with early on in my life, which was education. And uh, I guess I had something to prove. You know, I had something to prove to myself. And I think that kept me occupied. It kept me tied up in wanting to prove something to myself first and foremost, but also prove people wrong ab about me of whatever interpretation they had of me of that's just some dumb Marine or he's never going to make it in life or whatever. But I honestly felt school helped me think critically and how to maybe dissect information on my own and how to interpret it and think on my own. 
which I still use to this day. And I think that's been a godsend for me for sure, especially using my the opportunities with the GI Bill and things like that that the military had afforded me. I, I said, why not? Why not use it? And really, that was that was the case. I felt like I had earned it. I might as well just use it. And I never looked back. I never skipped the semester. And I feel that really did help me kind of pull myself back from a place of hopelessness and being able to map out a future for myself. For sure, I'd say it was school and not wanting to give up. How'd the opportunity to go back to school come up? Or was it just you knowing that you had that GI Bill available and somehow that idea came to mind? When I got out of the Marine Corps, I was perfectly content with just getting a job. And as long as I was being able to pay off the bills, I'd be happy for the rest of my life because I didn't want to go through any high risk stuff. I just wanted to have a normal life. I felt the way I could do that was just just get a job, grind it out. My dad did it. I could do it. I never planned on going to school ever. One day is like, well, I can get a little bit of help if I do go to school and if I'm still working, I can at least provide a little bit for my family. It just made the most sense. I saw it as a challenge and Maybe I could be the first and set an example for my kids and my family that I was able to do it, set the tone and be the first in my family to get a college degree. And I was, it looked like a daunting task for sure. My first semester was a rough one. English comp one I struggled with. But once I got hold of it and started knocking out these papers and getting really, really good grades and I started getting some motivation and started feeling like, hey, well, you know what, maybe maybe I can do this if I apply myself. If I just apply myself and don't quit, maybe it'll go somewhere for me. And it took me a little longer than usual than most people, but I felt like I was actually going to school for its intended purpose. I was learning, take these philosophy classes and biology classes and you're learning stuff about the natural world and how the world works and what the political spectrum looks like, how to interpret what's going on in a, in a different mind frame than I was traditionally would be afforded and for sure it was it was just an awesome experience so i didn't mind i didn't pay attention to getting out of here as fast as i can so i was just kind of soaking it in like i said i went for i felt its intended purpose and you were working jobs here and there the whole time as well yeah tire shop at one point getting my hands dirty and doing light mechanical work so i always did a little light mechanical work Shade tree stuff. I worked at Home Depot. Worked at a bunch of odds and ends. A lot of lot of little different jobs here and there, and auto parts dealership. And you name it. I did a lot of little different things and helped out the family where where needed. And for me, it was just a means to an end. You know, I just need to finish school and things will get better. And they did eventually, but not right away. You mentioned you worked as a historic preservation officer. I haven't heard of that job before. What's that all about? I graduated. I was like, yay, you know, they're going to be pounding at my door trying to offer me a job. I got a college degree, and I think I was just the naive person in me. felt like I worked so hard for it, and I kind of dropped my pack a little bit. I found myself three months later, still didn't have a job. I was like, well, okay, now I need to get serious about this. So I started applying to the city because my degree was a public administration degree, and I felt I could best apply it if I worked for a public organization applied everywhere and finally got in with the city, but it started off as a maintenance worker. I picked up dog poop and trash on the on the ritziest parts of town and did that. Uh, it was kind of humbling because here I am with a college degree and I'm picking up rich people's dog poop. I thought I was the hardest worker. I, 
I said, I took pride in whatever I did. Didn't matter. I, if it was picking up dog poop, I was going to be the best dog poop picker there was. If it was cleaning up trash, I made sure I picked up all the trash. I did that until I kept applying at different positions, and I finally found one that, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for that. That seems very interesting. I had to go up against a lot of other people, and uh, I ended up getting the job, which was, I was proud of myself for that, having to go up against a better part of 500 other very qualified applicants. And I got it, and I was very thoroughly pleased. And so that job entailed making sure people weren't destroying these historic homes that we have very many of in uh, San Antonio. It's one of the oldest cities in the country and some of the nicest homes you can think of. King Williams area, the La Vaca area, a lot of districts here that have beautiful homes that are aesthetically pleasing and that's what kind of brings the lure of them. A lot of times we get people that would buy them and want to alter them in a way that would detract from them. It was kind of my job to kind of make sure we stop that, keep the luster of those houses intact and I keep people from pretty much destroying history. Something I felt very strongly of. I love my city. I care deeply about its history, and I, I consider myself a history buff as far as world history and local history, and I try to keep up with a lot of things. And that was something I was very passionate about. It was definitely like a fish out of water. I'm a blue-collar guy at heart, but I was rubbing elbows with white-collar professionals and people that for sure above my pay grade that I was having to rub elbows with and it was different for me they're very very different what was your first exposure to the fire service and then what made you want to pursue the career that wasn't something i ever considered ever i felt i had after the marine corps i'd done enough risky stuff in my life and running in the burning buildings wasn't something that appeased to me but i had a really good buddy i went to high school with that we played football with and he called me out of the blue one day and said hey you know there's a department test that's coming up maybe you should look into taking it I kind of laughed. I was like, man, I, I'm not doing that. I, I, that's not something that really I would think I'd want to do. Like, I, I'm, I'm happy with having a mediocre, mundane life. I feel like I'm living on borrowed time as it is. He kind of stressed me. He's like, no, man. He's like, I think you'd be good for this. He's like, we really make a difference in people's lives. And, and he kind of explained the ins and outs of what they did and what the firehouse life looked like and the calls they made and I was like, okay. I was like, that's interesting. I started thinking by the end of our conversation, you know, by the end of our hour-long conversation, I was like, well, if not me, then who? Kind of worked my way into that mentality of like, I know I can do this and I know I can be great at it if, if I put my mind to it or at least put effort into it for sure. Like, I'm always finding different ways to do things that can hopefully potentially make things better for everybody. And for sure, by the end of that conversation, I... I felt like maybe this was what was meant for me. He had been in already 10 years, and by the time we got out, we went different paths, and he kind of explained to me what he was doing the whole time. And, man, okay, nothing about benefits, nothing about that stuff really intrigued me. It was that I can make a immediate impact in people's lives, not only people, but my people, my city, where I grew up, make an immediate impact in their life, just taking the same thing I've always done that, Marine Corps mentality of wanting to do a good job. And if not me, then who? I can do it. I can do it. Took the test. It was pretty daunting. This I wanted to say it was like 10,000 people, but that's not true. It looked like 10,000 people. But I want to say it was more like 5,000 people in this huge room taking a test. I was like, I'm never getting in. But I think something in me was just like, no, I, I, 
feel pretty confident about this. I don't know. I just feel like it was meant. This was meant for me to do. Took the test. It was one of the last ones to finish. It was a time test. I think I had like maybe less than five minutes to turn it in. Got up, turned it in. I did feel pretty confident about it just because not any other reason than just gut feeling. I felt confident that maybe this was what was for me and what was meant to be like it was a calling. It was a calling for sure. Lo and behold, I figure out where I sit on the uh, on the list. It was number 38 out of thousands. And, and that was surprising to me. I did get veterans preference points, which was pretty cool. They assigned five points on top of your score to help get veterans in, because I get, which I agree with. I feel like veterans have a good frame of reference on what the job might entail, especially going through some of the things we've been through. And our organization does tout itself as being a paramilitary organization structured similarly. I ended up number 38, went through the whole process, took a year. It took a year to get in, and I was ready to go. I was 32 years old, a little older than what I would have liked to have been, wanting to do something that is maybe a young man's game. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be the best at it. And what was the recruit experience like? It was like Marine Corps Boot Camp 2.0 on a smaller scale and not as physically demanding, not as much yelling. There was a lot of learning involved. But it was still pretty tough. I want to say maybe ours is one of the tougher in the country. We did have a Marine Corps infantryman that ran the academy course and the academy class. And it was a very high focus on physical activity and discipline, attention to detail. We had, I want to say, three quarters of our class was veterans. We were a pretty squared away class. So it just raised the bar even further, being locked in and moving in that direction of working as a team. And I think we got working as a team really, really well, really fast. So we were blowing records out the water. We were in our academy class for sure. And you still connected to those guys today? Oh, yeah. That's kind of the norm. People you went to drill school with, you stay in contact with and stay on good terms with for the most part. And, and it's a rite of passage that you all went through together. So anything that's tough and you're going to remember and you go through any type of hardship with people you stay connected with and still stay in contact with most of them for sure. We like to see where they're at, how they're doing, where their career's taking off and our class is doing really, really well. And what were the first few years like? It was another splash of cold water, but I thought I was better prepared. I was an adult now. And my first year we went to a lot of fires and I was surprised. I was like, man, I don't ever see this stuff on the news. Like this is crazy, which is, the norm. The public doesn't see 90% of what we do, and especially at nighttime when we're up all night and making crazy calls, and you see it all. Going to multiple victim calls and the fires were was trial by fire, literally, just trying to understand where I fit in in the big picture. And I did struggle with that again. I like to tell people I'm, I'm as dumb as a box of rocks, and if I can help myself to understand some of the things that I was seeing, then I can teach it. And I felt that that was early on, that was my goal, was I didn't understand a lot of the things that were going on. I like learning from the big picture to the small, so I know where I better fit in, in the big picture. And I didn't understand the big picture. You know, I knew I was new, I was a rookie, but I still thought, like, if I can understand the environment I'm in and what's going on, I can do my job better. And I saw that early on. I was like, I, I need to know what's going on. I don't like going into these fires not knowing exactly what I'm doing and not knowing vent profiles and some of the things I should have knew. I started off on a truck, so we do search without a hose line, and which is a high-risk task. And I wasn't comfortable in that position because 
I didn't know exactly what we were doing. Training, you understand that. A lot of times training isn't a heavy focus. It's it's the actual job, learning on the job. And I still felt like there was room for training that maybe we weren't doing. I made the switch to an engine just because I wanted to work with a buddy that was locked in and he understood that training was important the way I did. He had a military background as well. We never looked back after that. Training became a priority. Started going to fires and understanding that you know, what needed to be done, at least on our part, the tip of the spear. If you're on that nozzle, you are the tip of the spear. And things started making sense, especially going to outside classes and reading books and outside training. Things started to click and make more sense that way. With the split truck format, trucks, engines, rescues, I mean, they're great for a lot of things, dividing the work, mastering a specific set of skills and being able to execute them really well on the fire ground. They can be really well orchestrated and really well coordinated. But do you find it's common that and would be more beneficial for truckies to understand fully what engine guys do and engine guys or girls understand what truckies do? Is it common for one to be sort of siloed in what they know and not understand the other side of it? Or is everyone pretty well versed across the board? I think it's important for everybody to understand basic fire dynamics and what each action does on the fire ground because I don't feel that a lot of truck guys understand that what true engine work, the impact it has on the fire environment. And I think there's a there's a good reason for that. We can touch on if you want, but I feel, I think we should be versed for sure in the fire dynamics aspect of it and how high pressure, low pressure, all things that go on on the fire ground work and how they relate to each other. But I think it's good to also be good at your set of skills, being very proficient at what you do. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not the best truck guy. I feel like I'm great in the basics, which I feel every firefighter should be. Great in the big five, search, forcible entry, hose deployment, throwing water on a hand line and throwing ground ladders. I think every firefighter should at least be versed in that and be very well versed as far as when it breaks off to truck work and engine work i think you need to take a deep dive into what you do and that's what i did with engine work and learning the big picture and the small you know i think that's important i think it's important to know the big picture but also know where you fit in but and also being very well versed at your set of skills because i think it's I really do think it's impossible to be very proficient at every single task we do. And that kind of mimics Andy Frederick's writings, the gospel that he preached, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Jack of all trades, masters of none. I don't agree with that. I think we should be masters of one. Also with the work and understanding of the rest of it. But I know there's more to that saying, jack of all trades, masters of none. Maybe a master one, there's more to that, I get it. But I feel, for me, what I do, engine work, is the most important action on the fire ground, bar none. I feel that a lot of times the understanding of engine work from the truck side is with the old understanding of what fire attack was. They didn't flow water on smoke. They waited till they saw the whites of the fire's eyes and didn't improve conditions on the way in. They, The civilian aspect of it wasn't there on fire attack. So I don't blame the truck guys for looking at the engine guys like, y'all don't make things better until later in on the evolution. As we're truck guys, is like, we're going in there to save people. That's what their main focus was. And that's where the switch came from just recently, I'd say, the engine side is that our main focus is for the civilian, not the fire. But by addressing the fire and addressing conditions early, I'm talking at the door, start flowing when it calls for it, then you're improving conditions exponentially you're addressing breathability and 
improving the respiratory tract for those civilians, those potential civilians. So much so that I feel that if you can only do one of those tasks, I think it should be engine work for sure, 100%. There's some variables that go in line with going in and looking for victims with the unknowns of unknown victim location, unknown victim number. I think we almost do them a disservice by not addressing conditions immediately at the door with our stream and creating those positive changes, which can get very, very specific, but also very simple in its approach. It's funny how it cannot be realized of how much coverage you can make from the front door. I mean, I try to pass on to rookies that come through my hall that we can water the backyard from the front door. Like you can cover a lot of space. You've got that reach of stream. And that's what my focus has been since going to great classes like Nozzle Forward and expanding on that and learning from Kyle Ramagus and the engine company resurrection group, flowing and moving and the benefits and the science backed by that and what the benefits can do. I remember the first few fires we went to after going to those classes and applying it and how immediate positive changes were happening. And so the nozzle men should never feel heat. I'm a real big proponent of that. Go off of what you see. If visibility is zero, you should be flowing water. Applying those lessons learned and, and the immediate benefits thereof, I never turn back from that. Flow early and often and watch how things improve exponentially for those potential victims and make everything safe for everybody on that fire ground. So I get a lot of backlash from the old truck guys. And I understand it because their understanding of true engine work isn't what it actually is. They're going off of the old style where we're not there for civilians necessarily. Like we're not improving conditions for civilians. Matter of fact, there used to be that if you open the nozzle, it would make conditions worse, which is true. Wide fog patterns make it worse. Pushing around a lot of air and superheated gases and basically pushing fire on the other parts of that structure. And yeah, superheated gases, making spot fires at other places and in that building and all the synthetics that burn inside that house, needing to address them. That's why I'm a proponent. And that's not just because it sounds cool or looks cool because it's a new thing. It's all science-backed on the smoothbore nozzle, on the, the effects and the, the benefits to have of having just that tool and at the right flow rate. I am a big proponent of engine work after having taken a deep, deep dive and coming back up and trying to show at least the people in my immediate sphere of influence, like, hey, we need to be doing this. Sometimes that gives me a bad name because I do push a little too hard. So it's a learning experience for me, for sure to not always push so hard and maybe be a little more methodical with it and slower and be the voice of reason, not the annoying guy in the corner yelling. It's funny how things come full circle, though. That's not that smoothbores are the new thing. They're actually the old thing that should have always stayed the thing. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I post on a little training page we have is that we're going back 70 years. We're rewinding the clock 70 years where before the Lloyd Lehman came out and his studies got bastardized. It wasn't his fault. He actually warned us against doing the things that we're, we were doing for so long. People were just, no, we're going to close everything up. We're going to spray from the outside in a wide fog pattern and let those little droplets do their magic. And the one thing just never got addressed was, well, what about if there's people in there? Well, you fried them. <laughs> you fried them like a lobster. You steamed them like a lobster. So, yeah, before that, they flowed water because 
they didn't have any respiratory uh, protection on. They flowed because they, maybe they didn't completely understand the science, but they knew what they saw. They knew that when they were flowing water and they kept it on, that you're getting air entrainment with massive heat reduction and that gas contraction. They saw that they were getting all that lift, and especially with the smooth bores that, that was able to penetrate that thermal layer coat, the solids a lot better. And they were seeing the immediate benefits and how awesome it worked for them and the newest latest and greatest thing came on in 50 years 70 years ago little drops of water and everybody bid on it hook line and sinker to where now we have automatic fog nozzles that are in some cases five times the cost of a good smoothbore nozzle that'll do the job even better yeah that dialogue with firefighters and trying to have just a civil balanced discussion over something and having it not devolve into a my side, your side kind of argument is really tough. How have you navigated that razor's edge and how does that tie into you wanting to and eventually getting into instructing? I mentioned my mentality that I still got some growing up to do. I'm not perfect. I still got that chip on my shoulder. I'm the South Side kid that came in here and I found out some truth, which I feel like is the truth and trying to showcase that to people that sometimes would push back. I went back to sometimes in my days where my first reaction was to punch the bully in the mouth because you do get bullied sometimes when you're just a firefighter. I hate to say that, just a firefighter, but when you have no brass to back you up and you're, you're saying these things and your first reaction is to defend yourself. And I've, I've gotten tied up in the wrong arguments before, and which have actually hurt more than helped the cause. And I think the way I've circumnavigated that was by putting the civilian's needs first. I've heard that discussed by other prominent names in the industry or in the fire service. You get more buy-in with that. And for sure it's it's worked because we're here for them. And if all our actions on the fire ground that we can back up with data that say, hey, this is what's gonna be better for them, then really there's no argument. There's really no argument to be had. So I found I've gotten better buy-in with that. Like, hey, if we do this, we're going to potentially save more people. And it's really hard to argue that. One thing I've been really preaching is, I don't care if you've got a fog nozzle, but at least use the right stream, a straight stream. And I know there's no fire service absolutes, but I found one, straight stream or solid stream only for fire attack. If you're going to use a wide fog pattern for ventilation, good, that's for ventilation, but it's not fire attack. You're not actively applying that stream on very high superheated gases with the modern fire ground. So there's also buy-in with that. Me not just talking down a tool that they're using. or Like, hey, man, what if all I have is a fog nozzle? Then so good. Just use it in the right pattern. I've learned to, to do that a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, I'm a proponent of, of a certain type of nozzle. But really, if you're just using the right pattern and you're doing the right things and flowing early and often, you'll get most of those benefits. And you can ventilate with a smoothbore. And now we operate, a lot of departments have fans. So there isn't necessarily a need for the fog specifically for hydraulic ventilation. And they're, they're great for anything that's outside, right? Car fires, dumpster fires, you name it. The natural gas fires, they're, they're awesome for that. But when you're in a confined box, they, they don't belong there. Yeah, exactly. I know San Antonio is a real famous picture of fighting a propane fire in the academy with a very wide fog. And people see it. They're like, well, shoot, they work. I got fire coming right at me. I can do this and it's going to work. And that's not the case. There's a lot of data on that that tells you it's not the case. It doesn't protect from radiant heat and 
if you're in a compartment, like you said, you're creating too much pressure. You're stuffing that compartment with a lot of pressure, and that pressure has to go somewhere to the lowest part. And uh, usually that lowest part is in uh, one or two places, right in front of that low pressure zone in front of your wide fog nozzle, which is by your face, or towards one of your other crewmates that is potentially doing a search or doesn't have that so-called protection of a wide fog. Yeah, and you can feel that wet sting, right? When you're in a confined space and you open up like that. And it's something that we can tolerate dressed the way we are, but people in their pajamas can't. Exactly, yeah. And I know it's tough to trust in that little skinny stream of water. At least that was my thought process when I first started kind of like, man, I don't know. I was like, I like being able to wet a wide area of fire with a wider pattern because it just it seemed intuitive of me to like, there's a lot of fire, I can put more water everywhere. But that's not the case. Water getting dissipated before it even hits what you want to hit. And so to trust that straight stream or solid stream, it really took me making peace with my maker one time in a really bad fire where we were running smooth bores. And I was like, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. And the time came and it was the worst case of all the scenarios. And I honestly feel had I not had that smooth bore, I think things could have gone south for me. Helmet shield was pretty much toast when we came out. But I kept it open, used all the learnings, the teachings that I that I had learned, the training, and I was able to pretty much hold back a heavy volume of fire with the smoothbore with that solid stream. Once it breaks up against a hard surface, it disperses and has a lot of benefits with that bigger, heavier droplet. And for sure, after that, I was like, I'm never going back. I, I know what I just saw, especially backed by all this information, all the studies, everything. But yeah, if, if all you have is that fog pattern or fog nozzle like most departments straight stream let it rip it can also just breed laziness like you're saying like when you open up a fog and you're covering the whole space all at once and you think that's good then you don't have to then move the nozzle at all and you can just have it parked in your armpit and open it up i cover the whole spot at once and we're done you don't have to even worry about the skill of actually moving the nozzle and pointing and directing and painting the box so to speak it's that nozzle reaction that guys get fatigued with or haven't really put a lot of work in on handline stuff. They'll either half bail it or put it in a wider pattern where it'll reduce the nozzle reaction. And um, exactly learning that and reading all that, and it came from really the engine company Bible from Andrew Fredrickson. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention him, but all this stuff came from him and he talked about it. And I was like, man, this is pretty important. And starting to put it in play. And a lot of other guys have taken his readings or his uh, writings to heart. For sure, I, I'm trying to be one of them. I'm trying to uphold his uh, preachings by enacting it and living it and, and because it's true. He didn't maybe have all the studies to back him up. He had some, but now all these studies are starting to verify what he was talking about, black fire and whatnot, and him being a big proponent of the, the smooth board nozzle. And it's not just a cool thing with me. Uh, my grandpa used to tell me, um, the best tool is the one that, that works the best. If a fog nozzle will work better, <laughs> I'd use it. But it, it just doesn't. But if that's all you have, make it work the best for you. For sure, try to uphold those those teachings. So your training officer or instructor role is in conjunction or in addition to you being on the trucks? Is that how you're situated right now? Yeah. We have a rotating schedule sometimes of calling field training officers. And I was a field training officer at my old company in, my, in our district for the better part of three years. And now I'm back. I'm over here at my new company and they're going to peg me in next to be for our district, which I'm excited for. We've already gotten the ball rolling. 
you know, I'm very adamant. I think there's certain non-negotiables that Andy Fredericks talked about that I still try to harp on and I honestly feel being able to operate a handline effectively is the single most important thing we do for a lot of reasons. And there's a lot of pushback and I try to reason with people, some people maybe say the search or whatever, but I honestly feel that that's what Andy Frederick was really trying to tell us was that handline work is really God's work and we need to put most of our efforts into being good at that. If you're on an engine for sure, you need to be really good at it. That's where my training role comes in for trying to just get us up to speed on getting away from holding pistol grips, being able to use our body mechanics more effectively and hold that line open for longer durations of time. Because I feel like the things we talked about, reducing that nozzle reaction and GPMs and all that has an effect on the fire. If we're not comfortable holding that line open for longer periods of time, we're not going to do it, especially when nobody's looking and nobody can see you inside that structure, what you're doing. You got to be true to yourself and you got to be true to those potential civilians and it's not for you if you're tired you should have worked on it before you got there being able to hold it and just showing basic techniques and i hate saying just basic really those are two things that shouldn't ever be in the same sentence fundamental foundational yeah basics is is everything that's the most important thing we do talk to my captain and when we were trying to get the ball rolling on training and i told him and he agreed he actually finished my sentence he was like if you're very solid in the basics when something comes up that maybe isn't is outside of the basics you fall back on using all the basic skills together to get it done i'm like yeah for sure so i'm a very very big being proficient in the basics kind of guy i feel that we discussed earlier like handline work i feel is the most important thing we do just like andy said the fire goes as the first line goes and that was one of his indisputable truths of fire control efforts of the first handline save more lives than any other action. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And it's in the job title. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that was one of his indisputable truths. And to me, that's a non-negotiable rescue versus extinguishment and search versus attack. If we can only do one thing, I, I honestly feel it should be extinguishment and attack. My other favorite is if you put the fire out, no one has to jump out the window. Exactly. For sure. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, I think that was his FDIC speech, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's, that was awesome. And he, he talked about it there, like technical rescue is cool. It's glamorous, but when you lose sight of your core mission, your organization is going to fail. And our core mission, I feel like as a whole, as a whole fire service, we lost the focus on our core mission. We start doing all these outlying tasks and skills and everybody wants to do no knock on writ. But Andy actually addressed it, get out alive. And I think if we're working on RIT before we're working on fire attack, then we're putting the cart before the horse. The best way to keep firefighters safe is with an open nozzle and an aggressive manner. You keep it open when it calls for it. And we'll, we'll actually be faced with those RIT encounters much less than we already do. We need to be good at flowing water. In training, I'm still messing it up. Then I know for sure other people are still messing it up because we do it a lot. But if you minimize those mess ups and you can recover from them faster, if you've put in the work and you got to put in the work, I think that's, that's really, really important. One of the things I came across and I uh, remiss in not talking about him as well was uh, Lars Axelson. Really, he's a fire nerd from across the pond, has a really good 
YouTube videos of describing some of the fire environment. And I actually picked up something from him and I've kind of ex expounded on and I kind of built a good argument using it was the uh, cornfield harvester analogy. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about it. No, I haven't heard of it until you mentioned it and you're right up to me. So yeah, please expand on it and talk to me. Yeah. The way he explained it, I think he learned it from maybe it was a Russian analogy. So the cornfield harvester analogy, let's say you have, for some reason, let's just build a scenario. Your kids run into a cornfield. Corn's about six, seven feet high. You got kids, they disappear. Off in the distance, you hear a, a harvester, a corn harvester or whatever it's called. Off in the distance, you hear one start up and start cultivating the crop. You're suddenly faced with the situation. And I need to go find my kids or I need to go save them. What do you do? Do you start from one corner of the corn maze looking for them until you've done the whole crop for something that's a time sensitive deal? Or do you go running after them where you last saw them run into yelling for them? Or do you simply ask the corn harvester to stop? And then by looking at it like that as a thought experiment, obviously looking for your kids would be the search from one strict search from one side to the other, looking for them where they ran in last would be something like a VES or addressing the heart of the issue, which is the harvester would be fire attack. That kind of framed it for me on fire ground priorities for me in almost 99% of the situations, even for down firefighters, for sure we should still enact a writ, but we can't lose sight of, of the fire. We lost a firefighter here in San Antonio, but I don't want to get too deep into that, but uh, I felt we should prioritize water application in every situation, especially attacking the unknowns versus the knowns, unknown number of civilians, unknown location versus a very good idea and the known of fire location, fire size, and all the benefits that come along with your stream as soon as you start flowing and moving and fresh air introduction and heat reduction and wetting stuff so it doesn't burn. Even going on with that corn harvester analogy, even if you're not completely stopping it and you slow it down almost to a complete stop, then you're buying time, flowing water and cooling the gases and everything starts to compress and lift. Well, now you're shortening the cornfield and you can start to see better and you'll be able to find them quicker. And if you're flowing and moving through a house, you're actually covering ground and you could come upon someone as you flow and move towards the fire. Absolutely. You're getting a wet advance, so to speak, kind of like Dennis Laguerre talks about wet advance. You're wetting everything on the way. Stuff that is wet is not going to burn. So we're taking ground and we're keeping it just by wetting it. I think that's a good way to do business. I think to not do that, we're betting that we can find them in a timely manner and that we know how many are there are. If we're doing a search, we're taking a bet versus making positive impacts immediately. And I think if overall, if we can get better at interior water application, we can do a lot more benefits for sure for those uh, potential civilians. You've mentioned Aaron and Nozzle Forward and Andy. There's the Andy Fredericks training days that have come out of his teachings and that's running regularly now. What other class courses, conferences, experiences have been impactful on you and why? Bears of the Oath is going on right now. I went to the class before a few months ago and that was really, really great class because search I mentioned is kind of overall those those two search and fire attack are the two skills I feel that most people need work on are the ones that most firefighters need help with. So I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go address a weak point in my my skill set and went over there, got to do a lot of awesome search drills, live fire, vertical event. They had it all: VES, RIT, live victims, live firefighters, RIT. 
one of the toughest live fire classes I've ever been to, uh, if not the one. So that was great. I was also able to get a lot of great live fire in with my department. Did this uh, fire dynamics cube. And that was a great place for me to be able to apply a lot of the learning, a lot of the teachings that I was learning along the way. And if I do this, this happens. If I use a straight stream, they always told us don't apply water on smoke or you're going to create too much steam. But it, when I was the lead instructor, I was able to show the guys, look, I'm going to put it in straight stream. I'm going to open it up. Nobody's going to get steam burn. Okay. And I even did it. <laughs> Probably got a little too carried away, but I would do it even when the chiefs would come in. They wanted to see what was going on, but nobody ever got burned, steam burned or otherwise. And water application in every instant is usually the answer. And that was a good way to implement it. And I've also been to end of the job up in Kansas. That was a pretty good conference. I'm set to go to a few more this year. Um, I've been to a lot of local ones. I always like hearing what's going on outside my department. I went to Chief Corley Moore's in uh, Oklahoma when he had uh, about a year ago. That was great. A lot of great instructors or teachings that were going on. A lot of good uh, information and it was just great. It's good to go outside your department and see what other people are doing. And not necessarily to bring it back and change everything you're doing, but just to at least see what would work and what wouldn't work. There's a lot of stuff that wouldn't work in my department that works very well other places. There's stuff we've gotten away from in my department that they, st they still do very, very effectively in other departments, and I wish we would go back to it. But like you talk about with those fundamentals, the basics, there are things you can do as an individual on the scene. The way you handle hose and flow water, that doesn't need to be a department thing, right? All everyone else knows on the scene is that things are getting better quickly and the fire goes out. You can take these skills and incorporate them into how you personally operate and not have a detrimental effect to the operations or anybody else on scene. If anything, it would help make everything better. Absolutely. That's 100% correct. If the nozzle person is the tip of the spear and we're able to be more effective, that makes everything better immediately. I don't need to ask permission from a chief if I'm on the nozzle, if I can open it up. I don't need to ask my officer for permission if I can open it up. I'm using all of my gained experience and knowledge to make a positive impact. One of the good ways to go about interior work is once you open it up, don't close it until the fire is out. And I think being paired with that knowledge is game changing and being able to do it without really needing to change a lot of things in your department, just changing your, your thinking and your mentality and maybe getting into the reps on your own. These are all things, like you said, you can do on your own and you can have an immediate huge impact without changing anything, really just changing your mindset. That's very empowering. That was very empowering. That made, especially going to nozzle forward, that was what I gained out of it, was that you can make an immediate positive impact with just you. And ever since that class, it was game changing. It was a career changing for me that I do have a lot of say-so in the fire. And not only a lot of say-so, it was the most amount of say-so trying to make positive change. The water flow police or the ladder throw police aren't going to be coming and yeah. <laughs> giving you problems because of the way you do business. <laughs> yeah, I always say, and that's not to diminish the importance of pump ops. Right now, we're doing this huge pump ops training agenda, so to speak, in our department, which is fantastic. It's great. But we're putting the cart before the horse again. It doesn't matter if you do all these beautiful calculations and these beautiful supply evolutions and 
if that nozzle man is not comfortable opening up that nozzle, nothing's going to get better. And we're putting the cart before the horse. I've seen a lot of bad hose handling in, the, in a lot of places I've been. Sometimes it's just a quick adjustment that needs to be made, but sometimes it's a complete mind state change that we need to do this for this. Like, that's just water damage. A lot of guys would say water damage, water damage, water damage. And one of the things in our, our class we're teaching is just to kind of bring it home, bring the logic and the reason back into what we're doing. Family heirlooms mean nothing without somebody to give them to. And I'm sure my grandpa would tell me the same thing if we were to get some of his heirlooms that he gave me and my dad gave me wet or damaged or destroyed because I'm sure he would want his family lineage to carry on and be like, you know what? I can care less about this trinket or whatever. I want my bloodline to carry on. And that's the way we got to think about it. Water damage should be an afterthought to life safety. And a lot of times it's, it gets skewed. Well, and I think the thing is, if you're opening up the nozzle and flowing it that much in the situations where you should, everything's already been damaged. Yeah, true. Very, very true. And that's the thing is a lot of times being a firefighter can be a misnomer as well. We're actually lifesavers. And if we're improving breathing conditions, we're helping people to keep breathing and improve their respiratory tract. And we can't go off of heat. We can't wait till we feel heat through our gear. If we've done that, we've done the civilian a disservice. You got to go by what we see conditions that are present. If you can't see, usually means that somebody without gear can't breathe. Using that good in air entrainment when your stream hits a solid surface, you're introducing fresh air for them. And it's immediate. There's a lot of good data. There's good videos just showcase that the immediate positive impact of water introduction and air entrainment. It should be a best practice, I feel. Flowing and moving should be a best practice and however you can get it done. This is where me having the idea that our t-shirts and patches and hats should have live people and water on them instead of skulls and fire. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I don't think I'd sell very many t-shirts. <laughs> it's just not cool, right? It yeah. it literally is yeah. the coolest thing. It's why we're there. But for some reason, flames and skulls, it, they get the, the likes. There's a lot of t-shirt warriors out there that uh, they just want to look good in a t-shirt. And I like a good t-shirt myself, but I'd rather look good flowing water. I think when our priorities are kind of mixed, that's what really irks me. One of the things we talked about, about being functionally fit, and I feel that's important. Do the stuff that you're going to do on the fire ground. If you're going to flow water and move, and that's something that the, the studies are telling us that's important, do that. Do what you're going to do in a real-life situation, and you should do that first. Uh, I don't want to get on my high horse, but I honestly feel like we should be doing the physical actions that are that we're going to do on the fire ground. Throw a ground ladder in gear, flow water in gear when it calls for it. You know, work up to that. There's a lot of guys that call them fire bros. They want to get in the really, really good shape and they're getting real big and swollen. They want to look good in the shirt, but there's been no attention to the basics and uh, water application, forceful boring, the big five like we talked about. That is, again, you know, putting the cart before the horse. It's not mission focused. Yeah. And, and it's not to say they're mutually exclusive either. I know some guys that are really jacked and really in shape and really, they're really, really good firefighters. They're not mutually exclusive. I hate to be all or none or one or the other because that's not the case. So it's good to be both. It's good to be both because you can fall back on your physical ability when things don't work out as well. There are priorities too. That's one of the things I like to harp on. I, I tell guys, I don't care if you can do 100 burpees in a row right now, but you can work on that. But the thing you can't work on 
is flowing water when you're encountered with it right away because that can happen right now work on your physical stamina but if you can't do some of the basic requirements that you can get asked to do within the next 30 seconds or five minutes because you're inside a structure fire then your priorities are we need to readjust them it's easy to look at athletes and just see how they approach things, right? They do have gym time. They are working on mobility and agility and speed and strength and explosive power. But then they put their gear on whatever sport they're playing and they play the sport, right? And they drill and they practice the sport. You need to have both. Absolutely. That's one of the things I'm working on myself. I've always been a really strong guy. You can always have better stamina. And I like being able to go multiple air bottles for fires and I like having that capability. It's not always been possible too with other guys and that's one of those things that comes with self-discipline and being prepared to go multiple bouts at an event, merging the two together because if you can do both and merge them together, that's a beautiful thing. Jumping off of that, have you faced any physical or mental health challenges in your life and how have you managed them and overcome them and grown from them? What comes to mind for me too is obviously with your time in the Marines, now doing this job, do you find that certain things are triggering for you or, or set you off or bring you back? And how do you navigate through that? It sounds kind of cliche, but the loud bangs, for sure. It's not like it always brings something back. It just snaps me back into a time where I felt uncomfortable. There's been those instances, but Aside from that, I try not to be needing to be accommodated at all. It's just go do the job. I rarely bring up my time in the Marines to guys. If I do, it's because there's a funny story. Try not to darken the mood. But besides that, no, I mean, the, what we talked about, uh, the tough transition that occurred getting out of the Marines, it was tough. I mean, startled awake at night with something that started when I was in Iraq. That carried over for a long time here at home. And I'm glad that that's really not prevalent anymore. Besides that, I try not to be too needing to be accommodated as far as the people I'm around. I definitely don't want to be felt sorry for. And I try to just maintain my life and be there for other people as need be. No, I, I, I guess I just bring some of those experiences with not wanting bad things to happen. And that's why I heart so bad on or so much on the basics. I don't want any bad things to happen. I don't want the guys that I'm with to get hurt. That's kind of why I use those past experiences and I bring them now. And some people see me as being over dramatic in that sense that, hey, we need to work on this because if we don't, X, Y, and Z can happen. And unless you've been faced with those things firsthand of losing somebody in a high stakes environment like we're involved in, then it's hard for people that haven't been through it to put their mind frame in that. So mine is always actions of prevention. Let's prevent this stuff from ever happening. And through sports and time in the Marines and now in the fire service, is your body getting beat up? How are you managing that? I'm 37 now. Knees hurting, shoulders blown, and muscles get sore, and they don't heal as fast. And Yeah, for sure, I'm feeling it. I've broken my foot before, and I feel that every time we get a cold front in and ankles, torn ligaments, and stuff like that. And you get beat up, especially when you're, you're going from zero to 100 on the fire ground and wanting to make sure you're putting your foot in the fire bud and the the injuries have piled up thankfully nothing too major so I'm, i knock on wood right now but i'm trying to just make sure that i have a long career and trying to practice on longevity has your approach to staying strong and strength work has that changed i used to lift 
heavy heavy weights and you know i could still do all that stuff but i tend to stray from it now i don't want to tear a pec or tear a bicep and so most of it's body work now a lot of push-ups a lot of air squats pull-ups things like that and stairmaster work for cardio and that's kind of the the bulk of my workout stuff when it's not that it's actually the doing of the stuff in the gear getting the workout by doing you know flowing water throwing ladders doing all that stuff in gear so that I'm ready for the fire ground. And I don't know if that's necessarily the best way of maintaining, but it's kind of my way and I'm comfortable with it. Well, I would agree it is because you're not only getting your exercise and in, but you're getting the skill in as well. And you're building the, the specific muscles and strengthening the specific muscles you need to do that skill. I try not to harp on guys that do it a different way. There's always a little jab in here at the station there and here and there and that's just the typical fire stuff. So I try not to harp on everything on my way. I have my real good buddy that always says, Manny's a one-way MF-er. Right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the nickname he gives, he gives me. Yeah. One-way Manny. <laughs> I'm trying to get away from that. It's not always my way. There's other ways that work. When it comes to training, you're trying different things. And I've been open-minded recently just to new things, trying new things. And you can always learn from guys that, come at it from a different angle and for sure even when it came to stuff that I felt I was so concrete on I was like being shown something by somebody that hadn't maybe put in as many reps but just thought about it from a different angle and I was like I actually kind of like this <laughs> so being open-minded for sure is a, is a good way to approach things as long as the being jabbed about one way not being the only way that one way gets dismissed. A good way to flip it would be, well, one way might not be the only way, but all the ways are not the only ways. I'm definitely not a more tools in the toolbox kind of guy. I think there's a certain limit when you have too many ways, but it's good to have one, two, or three really, really good ways of doing something. And that goes back to kind of my basics mentality of be good at the things that we do most often. And if that doesn't work a certain way, try a different way, but be really good at that one as well. How are you approaching being the senior firefighter or one of the senior firefighters to the younger guys and girls in your service? And if you see them struggling, how are you mentoring them now? Yeah, so I actually signed up for a mentor program uh, that we're starting. But uh, even before then, just because it's a formal title doesn't mean that I started doing it. Shoot, since I came in the department, I came in a little older, a little more wiser than some of the younger guys that maybe had been in longer. So Instead of just pounding them about what they do wrong, actually talking to them like grownups and saying, hey, you know, let's have the core focus of what we do on things that can directly improve situations for everybody. And not like that outside of training, talking to them like, hey, well, what are you doing in your life or when that young probie buys a $60,000 car and you're like, that's probably not the best investment or things like that or trying to get to them before they even do that. And especially about their finances, because that was something that I had help with when I was in the Marines. I had a sergeant that pulled me aside and said, hey, let's talk about finances. It's not so much firefighting, but making sure that we're, we're set outside of the job so stuff doesn't bleed over, and now we got to deal with the situation that could have been prevented. And I think that's important, too, not just the fire stuff and the, uh, the finances, but, but last but not least would be the mental aspect of it. I tell them when we get probies after the first day of training we, we talk kind of decompress at the end of the night and over a cup of coffee and tell them hey you're going to see a lot of 
the messed up stuff. But that's what we're here for, to kind of lean on each other, to kind of decompress and don't let it eat you up. It's easier said than done sometimes, especially things when things hit home, when you can put yourself in the situation of the victims or the family of the victims and or the screams and all that. And I think that's important to have that conversation with probies and younger firefighters that are coming in. That's a part of the gig. You're going to see some messed up stuff. Do you guys have an employee assistance program? Do you have counselors available to talk to? Have you ever used that in your career? We do. I've never personally used it. I know it's been useful for other firefighters. I feel personally it's easier to be that first line of defense, so to speak, with the guys right next to you. Sometimes that's not that easy. You need to talk to somebody outside of that bubble that you have. And But I can see for sure where that comes in handy. And we do have counselors that are easily accessible. Myself, personally, I treat it the way we did with the Marine Corps, as being a, that shoulder to lean on them, the guy that's going through it with you, that just saw what you saw, and maybe talking about it a little bit. And you know who you can talk to it with and who you can. For me, I try to stay that open book to everybody like first responders sometimes we deal with stress with a little bit of humor and whatnot but sometimes it's that's not always the best way to go about it you gotta have that serious talk and i think what you're touching on here which is a good place for us to finish off on is the brotherhood and the family of the fire service so you've experienced it in the marines you've experienced in playing sports and now in the fire service but how have you seen it evolve over the years and what's your take on the status of brotherhood and the family of the fire service right now I think it's getting very healthy overall. You go to conferences and you meet new people and you create that relationship with them and keep in touch. And I think it's very, very strong right now and it's only getting better. I think there's that wave of change happening. I'm very happy that that's happening. To be honest with you, I feel like by understanding the core mission and what we're here for, we better understand each other and why we're all doing it in the first place. And now we're all on the same sheet of music. It's easier to be real with each other when we need to be and talking about some of the things that need to get talked about. I think it's moving in the right direction. I'm happy with it, uh, especially in my area. There's a lot of good things going on uh, as far as getting together on the core mission training and, and meeting the people that do the job with you and creating those relationships for people to lean on. It's only getting better. Is your Instagram page public? Can people find you at it and reach out and DM you? I have it set to private. It's easily accessible for sure. If anybody wants to message me or wants to see videos, I'm always up to doing that so that maybe if it helps them to be better nozzlemen, I'm always up for that. Sure. They want to see it. I'm, I'm open to becoming friends or whatever. I'm on Facebook as well. Yes. Yeah, so let me know where they can find you on both. Manny underscore B210 is my Instagram. And you can also find me on Facebook, Manuel Barajas. I run a few pages, kind of a shameless plug. We work on the training pages, mainly San Antonio Fire Attack. And the first line is our training page that we help with training in the area just to promote the brotherhood. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm glad I was finally able to hear your voice and for us to have a proper chat. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I'm happy as well. I appreciate what you do to help people map out their journeys in the fire service and get to listen to other people that do the same. I'm sure we're going to chat a lot more. Yes, sir. Okay, man. Thank you for having me. 